Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And today I am joined by Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Kyle. Happy to be here. We have got a packed news show for you guys today. On this week's show, we're going to start with some news that broke late this week. It broke on Wednesday that Senator Johnny Isaacson will retire from the U.S. Senate at the end of 2019. Then we're going to check in on the latest on Trump's ongoing trade dispute with China. The president tried to manage the conflict on the world stage over the weekend, but he got some surprising pushback from other world leaders, while Georgia farmers have continued to be caught in the middle here at home. And then finally this week, residents of Smyrna and Covington continue to worry about the emission of cancer-causing chemicals at two medical sterilization facilities, while the state tries to encourage the companies to make changes that safeguard residents' health. One, one topic that we are not going to touch on today, uh, this week Sarah Riggs Amico jumped into the U.S. Senate race. She is the third candidate in that race, along with Ted Terry and Teresa Tomlinson. And as we'll probably hit on in the news about Senator Isaacson, uh, all three of them are currently pledging to stay in the Democratic primary to try to take on Senator David Perdue in next year's elections. We are hoping to talk with Sarah Riggs Amico sometime in the next week or so, so you'll learn more about her candidacy here pretty soon. But Luke, just to kick us off, do you want to give us one reaction to uh, Sarah Riggs Amico jumping in the Senate race? I, I'm frankly surprised that she's jumping in, considering the bad headlines that she's had recently around the bankruptcy of her family business. But uh, I have been very interested to see how she is trying to uh, shape that as a positive for her campaign and as a rallying cry for why she uh, should be in the Senate rather than David Perdue. But I'm, I'm sure she will talk about that on the R show soon. Yeah, the message that she's had so far is that her financial troubles at her company, which led them to declare bankruptcy, um, has been precipitated by the trade conflict that we'll talk about in the second topic on today's show, um, and that that is part of the rationale for why she wants to run for the Senate. She also uh, highlights some pension difficulties that the Congress has not addressed. So yeah, we'll uh, table that for now. I'm sure we'll hear from Sarah soon. So with that, let's move on to our first topic. So on Wednesday, after 40 years in public service, Georgia Senator Johnny Isaacson announced that he would retire from the Senate at the end of the year. In a statement released by his office, the senator says that his health challenges are taking a toll on him, and that although, as he says, it goes against every fiber of my being to leave in the middle of my Senate term, Isaacson says he knows that resigning the seat is the right thing to do for Georgia. Luke, this news, I think, was really completely unexpected. Uh, Senator Isaacson's team has been saying not only that he would serve out the rest of his term, but they even said earlier this year that as of now, he was planning to run for reelection in 2022. What was your reaction to seeing this news of Isaacson's career coming to an end? Well, you know, in his statement, he said he was doing the right thing for Georgia. And I, I think he is. And I think he's also doing the right thing for himself. Uh, you know, Johnny Isaacson is an institution. He's an unquestionable statesman. Uh, he is someone who does politics right for the most part. And I, I think this caught me by far less surprise than a lot of people. Uh, Johnny Isaacson strikes me as someone who temperamentally would not be, in, you know, would not enjoy being uh, part of the same party as a figure like Donald Trump. But that's me reading into things. The other part that 
I'm not surprised about with this is, is far sadder in the sense that he's had a lot of health issues and he's been uh, battling Parkinson's disease for quite some time. And I just noticed that there was a increasing trend of like, you know, Jiazic's and fell, but he's fine. Don't worry about it. You know, kind of stories popping up. And uh, I'm just, you know, happy that he is not going to uh, keep pushing himself when he's clearly having a lot of trouble. And I I think it's, you know, it's very sad, but I'm I'm happy that his condition is not going to get worse while he's in office. Yeah, I think everyone, I think everyone around the state wants Johnny to do what is best for his health, what is best for his family. And the well wishes came from both sides of the aisle, not only among uh, Democrats and Republicans here in Georgia, but Democrats and Republicans that he had served with in Congress. He got a lot of uh, really loving statements from his colleague, his Democratic colleagues in the Senate who have always been a joy, who who said that it had always been a joy to work with him. Um, even And he had continued to do uh, some of the toughest things about being a member of Congress up until recently. He went on one of those overseas trips with a, a delegation of Democrats and Republicans, including uh, Tammy Duckworth, who's a, who's a veteran herself. Um, and they were, I believe, visiting troops over in Iraq earlier um, during one of the prior recesses this year. But I think one of the most heartfelt statements uh, – that was released that the AJC pointed out was the statement from Chris Carr, the Georgia attorney general. Uh, Chris Carr is a former campaign manager and former chief of staff for Senator Isaacson. He is probably, he might be the leading contender to be appointed in Isaacson's instead. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but he talked about how Isaacson had taken a chance on him earlier in his career um, and that he had learned so much from Johnny and that when he was confronted with any kind of tough decision in public life, he would always ask himself, what would Johnny do? So I think that this sentiment was felt on both sides of the aisle and is certainly fitting a fitting testament to his uh, over 40 year career in public service. Another person who I thought had a really, you know, great and touching statement about Johnny Addison was actually Teresa Tomlinson, one of the uh, Democratic candidates for the Senate, not Isaacson's seat, but you know per, the seat that Purdue currently ho- holds. And it's just funny how s- small of a world it is because in, in her uh, statement, she mentions that she first met uh, Senator Isaacson when she was a, a young girl and he helped sell her parents' house. And so it's just, it's so interesting how, you know, she ended up running into him and uh, she just said, uh, uh, quote, like so many Georgians, I consider myself lucky to know him both personally and professionally. His kindness and generosity is shown through and everything he did um so pretty unabashedly positive and i i think it's one this is one of those times where this is not people uh putting on you know a political face and just saying the thing that you're supposed to say uh isaacson is just one of those people who you know even in this partisan era even if he doesn't vote all the always the way you'd like him to uh he was someone who while he may not have always said what you want him to say he may not have always said the right thing. He was never saying the wrong thing. <laughs> and he was never, you know, going out there and, uh, you know, beating the uh, the Trump horde or anything like that. Um, so on, on that front, I think he is one of the few uh, Republicans who I feel like did not get uh, scathed by this era. And, you know, it's just to really, like, 
push it home like what an institution Isaacson is compared to some other politicians uh, in, you know, in Georgia and around the country is like UGA has for as long as I've been aware had a program that's literally called just like the Johnny Isaacson internship program where people go up and work in his office and it's just like so clearly nonpartisan that like many of my Democratic friends fought really hard to get in that program, were in that program, and had an excellent time and an excellent experience and, you know, just uh, felt like they were actually doing a lot of good for Georgia. So, Well, the other thing is he also began his career as quite a moderate on, on some really high-profile issues. Isaacson is interesting for following two of the most prominent and probably most boisterous political figures in modern Georgia political history. He entered the House of Representatives in 1999 when uh, Newt Gingrich retired from the 6th Congressional District seat and Isaacson won that seat in a special election. Um, And then in his first run for the Senate, he ran for Senate in 2004. And when he won that election, he followed Zell Miller, a former Democratic governor who was also one of the state's premier political figures. But he, for when he entered both of those seats, he like completely changed the sort of attitude and the, um, the approach of, of the person in that seat compared to his predecessors. It was really interesting, though, in 1996, when he ran for the Senate, he lost in a Republican primary runoff. But he made an ad showcasing that he was a pro-choice Republican. And he made this ad, he sat down in front of the camera with his wife and his daughter at his side. And he said that his two Republican opponents wanted to criminalize doctors performing healthcare services for women, and that he trusted his daughter and his, his wife to make the right decision when it came to their own health, which is like the kind of messaging you hear from Democrats today It's the kind of messaging that we heard in the debate over HB 481. The other really interesting position that he had when he entered Congress was that he, Congress in 1999, they were dealing with gun legislation because it was following the Columbine shooting, the first real televised school shooting in really in the modern era. And there was this question that the issue was not as polarized between Democrats and Republicans, but Isaacson was fighting for universal background checks, closing the gun show loophole, and some sort of uh, trigger lock mechanism for guns. And he he referred to these things as common sense gun reforms, which was also that's because they like, are, but <laughs> they are, yeah. But that's not the topic we're, we're talking. So about. it it was just it was just funny to see that. And then his career, you know, over his career, you start to see somebody who was a moderate and who was known for their deal-making, their negotiating skills early in their career, you kind of start to see Republicans walk away from those as being like positive qualities for their candidates. During the early part of uh, Bush's second term, Bush was pushing a big comprehensive immigration reform bill, and Senator Isaacson was right in the middle of it. He had offered this legislation forward that was the middle ground between hardline anti-immigration Republicans and some pro-immigration Republicans and Democrats, where hardline Republicans did not, as they still don't today, want any legalization for undocumented immigrants who are currently living in the country. And Democrats and immigration reformers did want that. And he had this middle ground bill that he was pushing that kind of split the difference between the two. And throughout the debate on this, his middle ground bill was basically ignored. It became ridiculed when his partner in the Senate, Saxby Chambliss, tried to sell it to Republicans at a state Republican gathering at this time. He got booed, which, you know, 
when we think of Isaacson and Chambliss, you wouldn't imagine them getting booed, but the grassroots were not happy about this. And this was sort of the beginning of the turn on immigration. Um, so it's interesting to see, you know, after that point, he was still a dealmaker, but he was not a dealmaker on the hot button, really polarizing political issues. The one other note about his career that I thought was really interesting was in advance of the 2010 elections, business interests were basically begging Johnny to come home and run for governor in 2010, uh, because apparently in legislative sessions in like 2008, 2009, it had been kind of a shit show at the end of Governor Purdue's term. Uh, there was a lot of infighting between Purdue and Cagle and former Speaker Glenn Richardson, and business interests were begging Johnny to come home and run for governor, and he eventually decided against it and served two more terms in the Senate. Um, but he is, he has carried that deal maker, that adult in the room persona since early in his career. Um, and it's really defined who he's been as a political figure in Georgia. Yeah. And I, I think Isaacson's praise is pretty well deserved. Um, I, I think the only criticism that I would give him, uh, because I think it's, you know, fair to talk about someone's career in totality when you have one of these moments that it makes sense to talk about it is that Isaacson was one of those people I really hoped would stand up to Trump a lot more. Um, and I think he was well positioned to do that because I think the you know people of Georgia had so much respect for him that I don't think it really would have threatened his career. Um, and he you know often uh, would say the right thing, as I mentioned earlier. But he did defend McCain's name in the face of abuse from the president. You know he didn't really go there where he we really need him to. I think sometimes, especially since there are so many issues that uh, Georgia has been hurt by the, you know, Trump's policies with the trade war, but, you know, even a less political issue like disaster relief, you know, he, he was pushing it uh, publicly. I'm sure he was doing a lot behind the scenes, but, you know, it's just like, he should have just been running Trump over the coals on that, but, you know, didn't really do it to the extent I wanted to. And, you know, his, you know, 538 has that great Trump score of like how often someone, you know, votes with Trump and based off all these, you know, glowing things we've just said about Isaacson, you expect it'd be like in the seventies or something, but it's 91.7%. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, polarization captures us all. <laughs> so, uh, with that though, being said though, uh, I, I would be, you know, very clear. I think, um, it's, it's sad that he is leaving in these circumstances and I really wish he would have been able to finish his term, uh, despite the interesting, uh, political consequences of him leaving when he's leaving. I, I just think it's, you know, it's just sad. Uh, and I'm, you know, I think Georgia is suffering a loss and, uh, you know, I hope he, uh, is able to, uh, keep his health up and, you know, live a long and happy life in retirement and join his friend Saxby Chambliss and hanging out with his grandchildren and drinking bourbon on his porch because that is what Saxby Chambliss said he was going to do when he's uh, left the Senate. So I'm assuming that's all he's done. <laughs> um, yes, uh, Senator Isaacson, we wish you the best in retirement and hope you get a lot of long, happy years with your family. Um, you certainly earned it with all of your service. So now we transition to the politics. Um, this this <laughs> uh, decision, so awful. <laughs> this decision basically sets off a political earthquake in Georgia politics. the The process moving forward is Senator Isaacson will retire at the end of 2019, and at that point, Governor Kemp gets the opportunity to appoint someone to continue to serve uh, Senator Isaacson's term. 
But that appointee is only going to serve through the next statewide election, which is the 2020 elections, the presidential election and the Senate race. Then at that point, Georgia will have two Senate races in the 2020 election. We'll have one for Senator Perdue's seat, and then we'll have a second that is a jungle primary where all Democrats and Republicans vying for Isaacson's seat will run in a nonpartisan contest that will be held on election day. And then in the basically un, in the basically very likely scenario that nobody gets 50% plus one in that, we will have a runoff in early January uh, for who will serve out the rest of Senator Isaacson's term through 2022. And then the interesting thing about uh, the strategy here as we get to what Kemp is thinking is that then the person who wins the race in 2020 will be up again in 2022. So potentially the person Brian Kemp appoints will be on the ballot with him in 2022 in that race where he's probably going to be taking on Stacey Abrams again. So as we think about What's going to happen here politically? What are some of the strategic questions for Governor Kemp as he as he thinks about this approach? And and who are some of the people that we think might be in the mix to get the appointment from Kemp? Well, the strategic consideration for Kemp is actually pretty simple, which is he needs to appoint someone that makes everyone else thinking about jumping into this race say, I don't want to even try it. Because... With this being a jungle primary, there's a lot of really strange things that could happen. Uh, you know, one, one of the people that we've talked about a lot on the show is Senator Jen Jurgen, And while she's won her seat in her own right, uh, there was a special election for her seat. And that's how she got in there originally. And that was a jungle primary that had a bunch of Republicans running in it and only one or two, maybe three Democrats. And the two Democrats ended up with more votes than any of the Republicans. And so it was a jungle primary runoff between two Democrats. And so if Kemp isn't careful and he picks someone who the party is not willing to rally behind or some outsider candidate, you know, is able to get a significant amount of the vote, and if Democrats come around one or two candidates, then you could very well have that scenario that happened uh, in that state Senate seat happening in a U.S. Senate seat where, you know, three or four Republicans are all running to be the next Johnny Isaacson and, you know, have a Senate seat for life. And then, up, oh, you know, the runoff is between two Democrats. It's totally realistic. Um, so... I mean, that's a real threat. So he's going to have to pick someone who makes Republicans not do that. Uh, personally, I hope he picks someone who no Republican believes in. And so eight Republicans running, two Democrats one run, or even better, one Democrat runs. And then, you know, we're able to win that way. But we'll, we'll see what happens. So some of the names that have been floated out there right now, I think the most prominent one is Attorney General Chris Carr, who we mentioned in the intro. Yeah, um, I feel like that's the strongest one right now just because of the Isaacson connection. And the fact he's actually, you know, worked with Isaacson so closely as far as like picking a spiritual successor. I don't know if Kemp could do better with that one. He has also won a statewide race at this point. Other names on the list are some names from the delegation like Collins and Ferguson and Graves. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan has been uh, batted around. I guess the rationale there is you think that a Republican could win the 
lieutenant governor's race and hold that seat probably, so it'd be safe to pick Duncan, who is Republicans consider to be a political star in the making. Another reason to maybe pick Duncan is if you didn't like his leadership in the of the state Senate, you could send him off to Washington and get him out of your way. Um, and that happens all the time. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a real strategy. And then some of the other names, just to run through the rest of the list, former representatives Karen Handel, who's currently running in Georgia 6, Jack Kingston, who lost to David Perdue in the 2014 Republican primary in the Senate race, State House pro tem Jan Jones, a business executive named Kelly Loeffler, who I had never heard of, but who had apparently considered a run for Congress in 2014, U.S. Attorney B.J. Pack, who I don't want to be taken away from my prosecution of the Chrisleys, which is a separate subject that probably <laughs> no one will get the reference of. I and dig then, it. <laughs> and then uh, Secretary... I don't know why I do, but I do. <laughs> I love that show. And then Secretary Sonny Perdue uh, is on the list. I'm not really sure Perdue, why. Perdue, Perdue. <laughs> yeah, Perdue, Perdue. That would be hilarious. I, 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 I doubt he'll do that. The one name that is not on this list that is somewhat surprising to me is Nathan Spencer Diaz. Fry. <laughs> <laughs> well, Spencer Fry, get that appointment. Um, is Nathan Deals because in some instances, I think there is incentive for somebody to appoint a, a relatively popular figure who will serve out a term and then not run again. But is there any strategic reason for Governor Kemp to maybe push off the decision of who will be the Republican nominee for that Senate seat in the long term and put a relatively popular figure like Nathan Deal in that seat to just close out the term until the next election for the Republicans? Well, probably the primary reason uh, that he's not picking Nathan Deal, I don't want to speak for you, Nathan, but Nathan Nathan Deal is 77 years old. He probably just wants to be retired. (laughs) And I don't blame him. Uh, I, I hope I am retired at 77. So uh, that that's probably why. Uh, now, the reason why, even if Governor Deal was willing to do it, I mean, this just goes right back to what I was just saying. The last thing he would want to do is to put in a placeholder because then you, you set up a scenario where Democrats run two candidates and they end up being the only ones in the runoff. So I, I think... Uh, you know, unfortunately for Democrats, uh, Kemp is in the position that he really needs to pick a strong candidate, I think, because if this becomes some giant primary fight, I, I think that hurts Republicans because the turnaround for this is going to be real tough because, you know, again, the we're not we're not used to this because we're not thinking about it and how it's going to play out because we're we're in August of the year before this is going to happen. What is actually going to happen is you're like, let's imagine the deal scenario, right? Where Kemp puts a placeholder, the candidate says, I'm not running. I'm here to finish out Isaacson's term. You know, please, you know, someone else who wants to do this forever run because I'm not going to do it. And you have like five Republicans who are all really solid running. They're not going to stop running in May. They're all going to run until November, all five Republicans versus, you know, two, three Democrats running. So you have like eight people running for a single position until November. And then whoever the top two are, are going to run in December, January. This is going to be madness. This is going to be like the John Ossoff thing, but for over a year. And the amount of money and the amount of power on the line is huge because... This 
very well, you know, with what how the Senate map looks and how all po- you know the presidential politics are lining up. Yeah, it, you know, the control of the Senate might be up for this runoff in January. So I, I think people underestimate just how insane this is going to be if there is a real jungle primary in the sense that there's like eight candidates all vying for this because they're all eight of them are going to be running the whole time. Well, speaking of uh, John Ossoff, let's close here with a look at the Democrats who could jump into this race. People close to Ossoff have already told BuzzFeed News that he is considering jumping into that race. Uh, as we mentioned in the top- I mean, he, he knows how to run in jungle primaries. <laughs> Uh, I want to ask you something real quick, Kyle, though, before we talk about the other people who could jump in. Were you surprised that the three Democrats that had announced against Purdue didn't switch races? To my knowledge, there's no, like, legal reasons why they, you know, couldn't have done it. They haven't qualified for it or anything yet. So I was just curious if you if you had any thoughts on that. I don't. The way that I heard it discussed, uh, Sarah Riggs Amico was on Political Rewind on on the day that Isaacson's retirement news came out, and her and Theron Johnson were talking about how you've already said that you're running for this race. You have put a target on David. All three of them have put a target on David Perdue, and Perdue is the motivating rationale for all three of their campaigns in some sense. So it would be difficult to look at your own supporters, your own donors and say, well, I'm going to jump to this other race now. I don't, because we don't know exactly who is going to be in the other race. It's like a strategic wild card as to which one would be better for you. And it's hard to know if you were one of the three Amico, Terry or Tomlinson, if you jump, is somebody else going to jump or they're kind of playing chicken with each other, I think to see who stays and who goes. And you also don't know you know, I think there is a rationale to levy against Purdue. His polling numbers are higher, I think, than his rationale suggests they could be, um, particularly in the trade topic that we'll talk about here in a little bit. But you don't know who the person that Kemp is going to appoint is. And if Kemp appoints somebody who is more popular than Purdue or doesn't have a record that you can really run against, maybe you're better off taking the shot in the Democratic primary and then getting a shot at Purdue in the general. So I don't, the strategic decision I think is tough there. I don't know that, I mean, they all said they're staying. They could not, they could go back on that. I, no, I think they're going I to. I think the, I think the, the move would have been to be like, well, we're thinking about it. But like now that they've said they're staying, I think they're locked in, which I, I actually think is good because that race has kind of been shaping up for a couple months. And we, you know, like we knew Amico was going to get in. Uh, and I, I, I think it will be valuable for the party to, have that fight and kind of come to a consensus on that. Cause I think it will actually help uh, the Democrat or Democrats running for the other seat um, to kind of see those results. So some of the other names that have been floated already in the press are among the following uh, John Barrow, who is currently running for a state Supreme court seat, Sherry Boston, who is the district attorney in DeKalb County, Jason Carter, who ran for governor in 2014, Jen Jordan in the state Senate, Michelle Nunn, who ran for Senate in 2014, John Ossoff, who's thinking about getting in, Michael Thurmond, who ran against Senator Isaacson in one of his prior races, Reverend Raphael Warnock, who is a preacher at Ebenezer Baptist Church, Dr. King's Old Church, Nikima Williams, who's the Democratic State Party Chair, and Sally Yates, a former U.S. Attorney. Among those names, do any stand out to you? Do Are there any that you would like want to get in or that you don't want to get in or any on this list that you think are definitely not getting in? What's your reaction to that list? 
I think Barrow is definitely not getting in, uh, and that's not because he wouldn't be a great candidate for it. I think he would be a great candidate for it, but I think he's been running for the Supreme Court for a while. Uh, I I would just be surprised to see him abandon that because I feel like he's a really strong candidate for that. And I uh, you know I know John Barrow personally, and he loves to win. <laughs> I think he sees his chances of winning the Supreme Court seat actually pretty high. Like I think it's pretty high. Uh, so I, I think he's gonna stick with that. I hope he does because I would love for him to be on the Supreme Court of Georgia. So I'm really hoping he stays there. Um, the I think this is really wide open. Yeah, my guess is there's one or two things happening, and they're not mutually exclusive. They could be happening together. One, there's a lot of like meetings going on of like Democrats, uh, you know, and you know, in the party, and you know, people like Jason Carter and people like Reverend Warnock who are just like, what are we gonna do? <laughs> like, ha- you know, how are we gonna handle this race? Because you know, like, no one knew this was coming. I don't even know if Isaacson knew this was coming. So you know, it's one of those things like no one's prepared for it. I think we Democrats are smart enough to know that we have to avoid the like eight Democrats running scenario. Like at most two can run. That's that that's the the cap that I think anyone being fair and honest in the party would say that's the most we can have because if we have any more than that due to the jungle primary element of it, there might be no Democrats in the runoff if you have more than two. Um so that being said, there's a lot of candidates that I theoretically think could be great, um, but it's really going to take a like happy warrior who's willing to not pull punches to to take this seat. And so I think we need someone younger, and I think we need someone who has either won some races or gone close or has learned from their losses, which you know are actually a lot of people <laughs> on that list. I I personally, you know, I worked for Jason Carter, I worked for Michelle Nunn, so I have a lot of admiration for them. I would be very interested if either of them got in, uh, you know, to see what they would do. I feel like Ossoff is uh, going to get in almost undeniably because he was probably going to get into the other race. Um, I felt like he was a little bit behind schedule on that, but I feel like this is just... This is built for him to get in. Like, if you, you could not build a factual circumstance that would be better <laughs> for John Ossoff, uh, you know, wherever he is thinking about getting in. So I, I think he's in, and, we're, you know, Reverend Warnock will flirt with it and probably not get in, and Sally Yates probably won't get in. But we'll, we'll see. I could be wrong about all of those. Yeah, a lot of it is TBD, but one thing is for sure, there is a political earthquake coming for Georgia in 2020. With that, though, let's move on to our second topic this week. So President Trump continued to escalate his administration's trade conflict with China over the past week. Last Friday, the president announced increased tariffs on Chinese imports, another chapter in the tit-for-tat dispute. And then over the weekend, President Trump had a shaky performance at a meeting of the world's largest economies, initially showing some regret over his decision to increase tariffs only to then have his administration walk that back again. And caught in the middle of this dispute are Georgia farmers who are losing access to markets in China while dealing with worsening finances here at home because of storms like Hurricane Michael. So Kyle, I know we're willing to talk about Georgia here, but there's some international news with uh, Trump and the trade war and everything that's going on there. And I personally need that, like, framework of what's been going on to sort of shore up my idea of the the trade war because i know it's an ongoing thing so what's like the latest stuff that's been going on with the trade war 
So the latest things, there's there's basically been two updates since late last week. Late last week, the president announced these increased tariffs on imports from China, which was another back and forth between the two countries. And this was a signal of, of this dispute getting worse. Basically, people who have been looking at this have been looking for some kind of an off-ramp for either President Trump or Chinese leadership to come to a deal. Um, escalating the tariffs is not an off-ramp. Uh, but on Monday, there was a better sign in this dispute. China officials had requested to restart talks with the Americans about this. Uh, China's top trade negotiator told a business conference that they were interested in continuing talks. But other Chinese officials stressed that, uh, and this is a quote here, if the U.S. side continues to carry out its tariff measures, China will continue to resolutely take measures to safeguard its legitimate rights and interests. So so China is sending two messages here. They're saying, we want to come back to the table and, and restart these talks, but we're not going to roll over and just accept uh, the Americans' demands. So it'll be interesting to see how the president reacts to this new offer by China. So I know Trump was recently at the G7, and this trade dispute is, you know, between two of the world's largest economies, if not the largest economies. And so that makes it a global issues. So all these world leaders are meeting in France. What what happened at this meeting? How, how did they talk about the trade war there? This was such a bizarre, bizarre spectacle from, from our president. He really, President Trump sent mixed messages at the G7 over the weekend. Um, he initially told the press that he regretted the latest escalation in tariffs, the ones that he issued late on Friday. Uh, but then he later had his administration, his his communications director, basically walk back and reverse his comments. Uh, the administration later said that what Trump meant by having second thoughts was that he had second thoughts about not raising the tariffs any higher. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the other thing that was really interesting about the performance at the G7 was he got some really sort of light pushback from other world leaders. Uh, Boris Johnson, who is the new prime minister in Britain, who is kind of a Trumpy political figure himself, he sort of lightly pushed back against the president, saying that the British were interested in of free and open trade. The French, who were the hosts of this G7 summit, they completely abandoned an effort to try to get a joint statement with the Americans and, and other participants in this summit. Uh, they basically called the whole effort pointless. Um, typically, what happens in a more normal administration is the leaders will come out and they will conclude the conference by giving some sort of a a joint statement that sort of lays out what happened at the summit, what the goals are for the world's seven largest economies in moving forward. And the French decided that that was completely pointless. The one last key development here was President Trump tried to do this sort of odd counter-programming with Japan. Obviously, the issue here between the U.S. and China is trade. And so President Trump wanted to announce a trade deal with Japan that was really keyed on in on the fact that Japan would buy U.S. agricultural goods. And so President Trump came out and said that in a, in a joint press conference. And uh, the prime minister of Japan kind of pushed back a little bit. And he said, you know, well, the Japanese government, the Japanese public sector is not going to be directly buying agricultural goods. But this sort of opens the possibility that private sector companies in Japan may buy more U.S. agricultural goods in President Trump was not very happy with that equivocation from the Japanese prime minister. He shot back that the private sector listens very strongly to Japan's public sector. 
which the whole sort of confluence of all these things and and the pushback that the president got, uh, which is not typical for a U.S. president, was really an odd display in France over the weekend. I don't really know if it is that odd, though. <laughs> you know, like, this is just what Trump does, and you can't expect to continue behaving the way that he does and constantly lashing out at people and not have people return that in kind. Yeah, I think so. I I think that this is what worries the rest of the leaders in the group of seven nations, these these seven uh, major world economies, uh, because globally, we are looking at an economic slowdown. There are fears of a recession in the United States. Um, and this was really a key test on whether or not if there was a really significant economic slowdown, whether or not the leaders of these economies could work in concert with one another to keep the economy afloat. Uh, People who remember the Great Recession will probably remember that the U.S. economy did a little better than Europe's economy. Europe's reaction to that financial crisis was a little bit more haphazard. And um, I've heard, you know, in, in retellings of this financial crisis that in the early days of President Barack Obama's presidency, Part of his job was almost daily phone calls with his partners in Europe to try to get them to manage that situation in a coordinated and in a sane way. And it's hard to look at some of the leadership of these economies right now and think they're capable of doing the same thing. Yeah. And, you know, the the thing I would point out as well is like it's not just the Obama administration. You know, this downturn began during the Bush administration. And even they, you know, reached out to, nor- you know, to other leaders and had normal human adult conversations with them where they didn't blame them or call them names and tried to work on this stuff together. And obviously, you know, they had a different policy approach to how to handle it than I would or President Obama would. But, you know, they were responsible and they uh, tried to work together to come to a consensus. And um, with the, you know, small rumblings we're having in the economy now based off of this and just, you know, cyclical you know, changes in the economy, I can't even imagine what Trump's response would be if we actually get into a full-blown recession or have a serious crisis because he's already proven that he would be incapable of handling that because he would make it about him and emotionally uh, lash out to everyone else and blame them while, you know, he's the one at the helm. When he doesn't seem to understand either that his own moves on trade may help contribute to an economic slowdown. And part of the reason that that could happen is because these impacts are being felt here at home, particularly in our agricultural community. Georgia's Farm Bureau President Gerald Long, he's told the media recently that he doesn't know the extent of this continuing trade conflict by any means, but it just adds to the problems that they've had in agriculture. And he was really unequivocal when he said that they needed to get the trade dispute behind them for Georgia farmers to be able to sort of move on and, and, and regain some stability financially. And and this was really laid bare in a brand new report from uh, the University of Georgia's Center for Agribusiness. They put out a report earlier this summer where they pointed out that 107 of the 234 products that China has put tariffs on, American products that China has put tariffs on, are agricultural products. And estimates of the forecast of total agriculture exports from the United States are down $4.5 billion nationwide from estimates earlier this year. And these tariffs and, and this ongoing dispute is really being felt 
among farmers here at home, particularly farmers who are uh, producing crops like cotton and peanuts and uh, poultry is also feeling some of the effects. And, and this is being combined with a really worsening financial situation for our farmers. A recent uh, report also showed that farmers in Georgia have some of the highest debt to asset and debt to equity ratios forecasted, some of the highest in the last decade, which goes back to the to the recession that we were talking about earlier. Georgia farmers are really in a shaky spot right now, and this trade war is not helping them at all. So yeah, I mean, it's pretty unquestionable that the trade dispute has been affecting Georgia and, you know, in a, in a real way, because, you know, people forget, like, you know, when we say Georgia, it's not just Atlanta and Athens. It's it's a lot of open fields and agriculture. So so how have Georgia's leaders responded to this trade dispute? So the AJC reported on Monday that Governor Kemp was at this gathering of Asian American business leaders, and he was part of this coordinated effort among Republicans and Trump supporters nationwide to go out and make the case for President Trump's economic record. And he got asked at one of the first questions he was asked um, at this meeting of business leaders in Gwinnett. So there are people all over the state who are concerned about this issue. He got asked about the impact of the trade war and in his view on it. And he said, we have to trust the president, which was just remarkable when you look back at the president's performance at the G7 over the weekend, there wasn't much there to me that at least inspired a lot of trust in the president. The other reaction has been to either say to trust the president or to sort of even make fun of or make jokes at the expense of the farmers who are struggling. Uh, Here's actually what Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue said at a gathering of Minnesota farmers earlier this summer. What do you call two farmers in a basement? I said, I don't know. What do you call them? He said a wine cellar. Yeah, that was really surprising to hear uh, Secretary Purdue address it that way. He he did get some laughter from the crowd. He also got some boos. Y- you could understand why the administration kind of wants to deflect a little bit of the pressure on this issue because it's not a winning one for them. But largely, President Trump has maintained support among his base and, and a really crucial component of his base are people living in rural areas in this country, people who are farmers, people who work in agriculture-connected industries. But Luke, do you think that there's a breaking point there in terms of support for the president from groups like these who are being harmed by the president's trade conflict? I, I really wish I knew uh, because I, I feel like so much of this, you know, is owning the libs. <laughs> you know, like so much of this is like a far, you know, a farmer could be watching TV and, you know, Fox News would say that. Experts say that the trade war is hurting farmer American farmers, and just because it's the, Trump is doing something that makes experts mad, that person likes it, even if it's hurting their bottom line. You know, they're 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 part of the team, and they feel like this is their sacrifice to help Trump do whatever the hell he's doing. Um, so I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm hoping that. That is basically only the hardest core supporters of Trump and that there's a lot of business minded people or sane people who uh, realize that, you know, maybe this strategy was a good idea. It wasn't. But maybe, you know, like they could, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt that we should try something new. It didn't work and that he should, you know, we should change course. And unfortunately, what this president has made incredibly clear on literally every issue is that he will never actually change course. He will say he's going to change course. He will say he's not going to change course. He will say every position, but his position will be main. He will maintain 
the thing he's doing, whatever that thing is on any issue. And so I don't know what people's breaking points are. Like, you know, when, when Trump said that he could shoot someone and no one would care in his base, I, I have gotten to the point where I pretty much believe that, that I, I think they're going to have to, I don't know what they need to see, uh, to convince themselves that supporting this president is not in their best interest. Yeah, I think the one thing that may change the calculus a little bit is that the damage here is going to be long lasting. The administration does have a compensation program where they are attempting to redirect money to farmers who have been impacted by the trade war. You can actually see there's a database. You can see the payments that Georgia farmers have gotten that Georgia farmers have gotten in compensation to try to cover some of their losses. But the issue for farmers is, is not just lost profits in this one growing season. It's the fact that the work that Georgia farmers have done and the work that economic development professionals working with Georgia farmers have done to build markets in China and around the world for products like Georgia peanuts that those efforts have been largely reversed by the tariffs. And that in the meantime, while we've gone back and forth on this dispute, this is all lost time for building new markets. And this combines with the fact that, you know, we had that really bad hurricane in 2018, Hurricane Michael. And to make matters even worse, it took them over 200 days in the Congress to appropriate aid, disaster aid, to support the finances of farmers in, in Georgia and other southern states and, and other people around the country who dealt with natural disasters. So you already have this really weak financial position, and you have very little prospect to see it turning around anytime soon. And the thing that you find in reporting uh, when anyone goes out and talks to farmers is they don't want subsidies. They want markets. They want markets for their products. And that effort is actively being harmed by this effort on the trade front. And so you have to wonder if that sort of that effect sort of piles up over time. But it does go against, you know, that's just one sort of economic issue. And a lot of the folks who are farmers are have conservative social values. And those things are are currently in tension. But the way the president campaigns, the way he talks about immigrants, the way he talks about issues like that, it's meant to put the focus on those things for those voters and say, well, you know, things might be tough for you, but here are these immigrants coming and they're taking your jobs and they're taking your benefits and all this. It's like meant to find a scapegoat. And that may be working. That may be what, what sort of insulates Trump from a lot of the damage he's causing with this trade conflict. So the other place that this matters politically is in the Senate race. And we gave uh, both Mayor Ted Terry and Mayor Teresa Tomlinson the opportunity to respond to the president's actions here on trade. Let's hear from both of them here. First, let's hear from Mayor Teresa Tomlinson. Well, we just finished a South Georgia tour in Grady, Decatur, Thomas, and other counties uh, where they've been devastated. Uh, the farmers have been devastated by these tariff wars. You know, I think it, it, it is a stark reality that is setting in that this particular administration, uh, facilitated by our Senator David Perdue, an agriculture commissioner, frankly, um, has resulted in us losing supply chains on pecan exports, uh, soybeans, and now corn and cotton are being affected. And so as you see, Kyle, when you're down there, is, is these folks have literally been gut-punched. Uh, they 
are losing farms. The AJC's recently reported that uh, suicides among farmers have been spiked, and you can see it on the faces of folks that they're losing hope. And so what we need uh, is someone who understands the complexity of global trade, who understands that tariff wars are not, quote, easy to win and that there is much collateral damage. And so uh, somehow we're going to have to uh, pull back, unravel this, and recreate a workable global trade strategy. Uh, you know, I said a moment ago that the supply chains are being disrupted because of this. Not only has China retaliated with increasing tariffs, uh, stopped purchasing from uh, our farmers here in Georgia and across the nation, but they also have lowered tariffs with other trading nations. And so it is now much less expensive for China um, to purchase goods from uh, other nations and much less expensive for them uh, to sell to these other nations. So they are greatly um, enabling and uh, encouraging these other supply chains to take root, and that's what's most disturbing about this reckless trade policy. We just have to have people in D.C. who understand the complexities of the economy, of trade, and uh, get rid of this bull in the china shop bravado of uh, just, just thinking we're going to be able uh, to state what we want and others are going to um, comply because it, it harms our folks. And next is Mayor Ted Terry. I would say that this is a prime example of the dangerous direction that Trump is taking the economy in by engaging in egotistical trade wars that are destroying the livelihoods of Georgia's farmers. And the Trump administration's officials are literally laughing at their expense, calling farmers whiners. And as a senator, I'm going to meet with farmers. I'm going to listen to the farmers and not just listen to them, but actually represent their voices in Washington, D.C., and not just only side with whatever the political expediency is of the moment. So we need a senator that's going to fight for all of Georgia, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. How do you think that this issue impacts the Senate race, or, or do you think it matters at all? I think it could be potentially huge for the Senate race, but that's only if the you know the levy breaks on this issue and that Georgia farmers really just take into account what the president's policies have been doing to their businesses. And so I, I think it's one of those things where, you know, the door will not swing both ways. It's going to swing in unison. So if Georgia farmers stick with Trump and they're like, this is the cost of business and, you know, we're, we're part of this bigger effort to stop China from doing whatever they don't like China doing and they agree with Trump that they don't like them doing, I've never really fully understood why we're doing this, but, you know, I digress. Uh, you know, I think they stick with him. On the other hand, if they are tired of this and they're tired of it hitting their bottom line, I think they're going to blame Senator Perdue and I, because he has been lockstep with this president at every corner, every chance. Not only is there nothing that Senator Perdue disagrees with this president on, he is one of the few people I feel like no matter what the situation is, he turns it up to 11. And he's like, I know I could just say I support the president here, but I want to make it clear that I am the strongest supporter of the president on this issue. And he says that on basically every issue. So I think if there was any Republican anywhere who would be unable to protect himself if opinion turns against this president it is david perdue and i think on this issue with his cousin being the agricultural secretary he's like doubly screwed on that so it it really depends i think on 
what the overall opinion is. If everyone sticks with Trump, Purdue will do fine. If not, Purdue could be in serious trouble. Before we leave this topic, I have one uh, non sequitur on the G7 summit that has nothing to do with agricultural or trade, uh, but was this really stark example of the divided interest between the United States and some of our allies. French President Emmanuel Macron issued this surprise invite to the Iranian foreign minister to show up at the G7. This is interesting because, as you may remember, President Trump withdrew the U.S. from the Iran deal. But while the U.S. is sort of no longer enforcing the deal and wants the whole thing to blow up, European leaders like Macron in France want the deal to continue, and they're trying to hold things together. And it was a really surprising, aggressive action from a foreign leader to invite somebody who basically wasn't invited to the party, the Iranian foreign minister, to sort of show off the disagreement with Trump in the United States. It actually earned the French president some blowback from former UN ambassador Nikki Haley, who said that real friends don't do that. And it was just this really stark example of how much of a division there is between us and the rest of the world. The rest of the Iran conversation is probably a discussion for another day, but it wasn't just another one of those really odd scenes from the G7. And that's not even the only one because, you know, it's so funny, you know, this administration complaining about how we're being mistreated by all the other countries when, you know, they, the G7 leaguers also held a meeting on the climate crisis and, oh, there's one seat empty. Guess who it is? Donald Trump. I mean, it's just, it's so predictable. It's so predictable and they act like they're so aggrieved and they're so surprised that people are treating them the way they do. And then you, you know, turn on the news, look at Twitter and Trump is calling these people names and, uh, you know, just attacking them for no reason. And I'm just, I'm just so done with this administration and it's uh, bemoaning of the rest of the world's mistreatment of our fragile baby president. Well, on that note, let's, let's move on to our second topic our second topic of the week here at home. So in July, a report from Georgia Health News and WebMD unveiled that a medical sterilization facility in Smyrna and Covington were emitting a chemical called ethylene oxide. Exposure to the chemical was recently found to be an elevated cancer risk, and a preliminary assessment of that information was communicated from federal regulators to the states, but the public was really left out of the loop on this one. The disclosure by reporters at Georgia Health News and WebMD led to weeks of questions lobbed at public officials about why residents living near these facilities were kept in the dark. So let's discuss these findings and how officials have reacted since the disclosure. So, Kyle, I, I've been following this one, too, but uh, I've, I've just started a new program at UGA, and so I've been kind of buried. So how, how did we get here? So, like, what's been going on with this? So as we noted in the intro, there was this new media report in July where Georgia Health News and WebMD basically reported on a publicly available report that laid out that this chemical called ethylene oxide, which is a chemical used in the sterilization of medical equipment, that emissions of that chemical were suddenly found to be at a higher risk of causing cancer among people who were exposed to the emissions, people who lived near some sort of an emitting source of this chemical. The EPA came to that new realization about ethylene oxide in 2016, and they documented that increased cancer risk. And then in 2018, as a part of a periodic report, they basically laid out 
where in the country this was a problem by looking at specific census tracts where cancer risks were elevated because these toxins were being emitted. That 2018 report came out federally, and it was communicated to state agencies like Georgia's Environmental Protection Division. But as the report from Georgia Health News laid out, both EPA officials in Washington and Georgia EPD officials here at home decided not to really make these findings publicly accessible, not put out a press release, not really alert the public in any kind of real serious way. And so it went from 2018 to 2019 when this report came out in July from the press. And that was really what set off this reaction locally among people living near these plants who were really concerned about the health risks present from this pollution. So what did the Georgia Health News and WebMD report unveil about these two plants? So I would kind of put the findings from this report into four separate buckets. I I think the main takeaway here is these findings really are the basis for a lot of public skepticism about what self-interested entities like these companies will say. And and I want to caveat this a little bit before we talk about the findings in the report. I, I think sort of where I'm at in terms of how we talk about this is this is sort of the beginning of the discussion, not the end. I think it's difficult as we talk about what this report uncovered to really get at what the intent of officials were as they were making these decisions. Um, You know, we talk a lot about the role that special interests and special interest money play, particularly on environmental issues. And when interests are spending money on an issue, it's sort of easy to gauge their intent, what they want a regulation or, or a law to be. When we're talking about like agency staff here, I think that's a little bit tougher to figure out. But I think we learned basically four things from this report from Georgia Health News and WebMD. We learned about some new data that's available now. We learned that the Georgia Environmental Protection Division, in response to learning about this ethylene oxide chemical from the EPA, that they did some of their own modeling of the health risks that were created by this emission. And they found that in Smyrna, that the model showed that emissions were between 27 and 61 times higher than what would have been considered acceptable in Smyrna. And in Covington, the emissions were 17 to 97 times higher than what would have been considered acceptable. Those are models. Those are not based on real air tests, but those models themselves are are particularly concerning. We also learned about some new data that does show that there is an an elevated incidence of cancer in some of these areas, particularly in the zip code 30014, which is the zip code surrounding the Covington facility. Both the Georgia Comprehensive Cancer Registry and the Georgia Department of Public Health have data showing an elevated risk of cancer in that area. So that's the data. We learned about that. We also learned about a lot from emails that were acquired via open records requests. We learned that the state was reluctant to share information with federal EPA investigators. They pushed back on some of the information requests that were coming from the feds on this issue. We also learned that uh, the as the Environmental Protection Division in Georgia worked with these two companies, that, that the self-reported emissions from the companies dropped dramatically as these tests were being done. Now, the companies say... That's because their testing got better, that they were more confident in the amount of emissions they were putting out. But it is a little concerning that EPD was relying 
on self-testing from these companies and that those levels dropped as the scrutiny from EPD increased. Now, later AJC reporting showed that EPD officials are urging residents to not panic because more recent emissions data is showing that there is a little bit of a lower risk. But up to this point, that data is not based on independent testing done by anybody other than the companies. The third thing I think we learned about was about EPD's response to this. We learned that state regulators are waiting on the EPA to potentially lower the assessment of health risks from this chemical. And that is at the request of the American Chemistry Council, but it's sort of unclear whether that's based in science or whether it's actually based in industry trying to put pressure on environmental regulators. And then we learned at a hearing that was sort of meant to be an apology that the EPD said their goal was to take the EPA findings and find out more about it to get to the bottom of this issue, and that the WebMD report really scooped them, and that's why they were caught off guard. So they didn't fully apologize, but they gave gave a little bit of, of a rationale as to why the public was kept in the dark. The last thing to point out here is Georgia is not the only state dealing with this issue. Sterogenics is the name of the company in Smyrna, and they also have a facility in Illinois, Uh, But in Illinois, the EPA did air testing of the sterogenics facility there, and that's a facility that's currently been shut down by regulators in Illinois. And they were finding that when the EPA did independent air testing, the levels that they were finding of this chemical were much higher than what was being self-reported by sterogenics. So I think in sum, this Georgia Health News report really lays the groundwork for us to be skeptical of what the self-interested parties like Sterogenics and BD Bard, the two companies are saying, and what, and really has served as a strong basis for a lot of public skepticism and a lot of public pressure on officials who are now uh, being asked to deal with this and clean it up. Right. And so uh, what I'm wondering is where we, where we go from here, because I know that State Representative Eric Allen and State Senator Jen Jurgen have called for Governor Kemp to close down the facility. I know David Scott, a U.S. congressman from the area, said the same thing. So how has Governor Kemp reacted to the situation? So Governor Kemp, he's kind of reacted in two ways. He's started to take meetings with both of these companies. Um, he met with officials from Sterogenics and BD Bard. Sterogenics, the Smyrna facility, has entered into a consent decree with the state of Georgia, and they have agreed to spend $2.5 million on emissions control upgrades. These are supposed to bring the emissions down to an acceptable level, but the upgrades on that are going to take, I believe the AJC reported they're going to take 12 to 24 weeks. Um, So there's a waiting period here for this to really go into effect. BD Bard, the company over in Covington, they pledged to spend $8 million to improve systems at Their site's in Covington, and they have another site in Madison. Uh, But thus far, they have not agreed to any kind of legal agreement with the state. So the governor was pressed on whether or not, after these meetings, after this progress has been made, should should the operations at the companies be suspended while upgrades are done to be sure that there are no public health risks or or that they're really limited. And the governor basically shut that down. He said, The companies, they're in compliance, whether people like it or not, they're in compliance with federal and state regulations. That just seems so strange because I I think the universal thing that is clear here, and I mean, even the company is saying that, is that we don't know the full story yet. And so for Kemp to just come out and say 
that they're in compliance is such a weird response. Like, he's the governor of Georgia. He's not the lawyer for these companies. It's not his responsibility to cover for them. It's his responsibility to get to the bottom of this issue. And so I just, I just don't understand it. Well, and the lawyer thing there is really interesting because he almost answered the question as if, as if he was a lawyer. Because there is a question about whether or not state law would allow the governor to suspend operations at these facilities. I think there's arguments on both sides of that. But I think the governor's position might be that if they are technically in compliance with state and federal regulations, making the case for the state to be able to suspend operations at these facilities is going to be very difficult. But what I was confused about from the governor's response was that he didn't lead by trying to like quell concerns among the public. He didn't talk about how much they've done to make sure that the cancer risks here are lowered or that the other health risks are lowered. He didn't really comment on whether or not the federal and state regulations are good enough to ensure that those health risks are minimal. He just like focused on whether or not legally it was doable to suspend operations at these facilities. Yeah, it's so strange that there's like no leadership in this statement at all because, you know, basically I read this like, yeah, sure, you might be getting cancer because of what they're doing, but I mean, it's that's what the regulations are, so that's fine. It's just like, I just don't, I can't imagine that many other governors of any states would not, you know, approach this differently in the sense that they would be saying that, you know, like, Either we're going to be looking into this like that, keeping the door open to like, maybe there is something going on here. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is overcompensating and like trying to not cause a panic or or what, but it just does not seem reassuring to me. And I'm pretty far away from the plant. Even uh, Republican Congressman Barry Loudermilk took the approach that I advocated for Kemp to do of just being like, we need to look into this. There might be a problem. Yeah, well, it's interesting from a Republican perspective, too, because Republicans in Washington have continued to say that the EPA is a federal agency that doesn't need to exist. Now, the EPA didn't do Georgia a lot of favors in this instance, so maybe they need to be reformed. But it is tough to look at this issue and come to the conclusion that EPA regulations are too stringent and that the EPA needs to be abolished or that its scope needs to be severely limited. Um, I think often Republicans will point to the air pollution, the water pollution that was terrible in the 20s and 30s and 40s in advance of the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and that all of this regulatory environment has just been overdone. Um, you know, the, the Attorney General's office in Georgia is celebrating a ruling this week that overturns a Obama-era clean water rule that was meant to limit pollution in the, the types of streams, and they're called ephemeral water sources, but they're sort of secondary sources that then flow into major primary water sources. You know, the Attorney General's office celebrated the ruling that overturns that rule because of federal overreach, but there wasn't a focus there on, okay, well, that pollution is still an issue. So like, what are we going to do about it? So I don't know. I like it's good to have it's good that Loudermilk has raised those questions, but I, I think it it does go against the sort of general Republican messaging on this that the EPA is overreaching. Um, in this case, it appears they didn't do enough. So it seems like Kemp is not going to try to shut these plants down in the near term. So where where are we going from here? 
So this story got even more interesting. Today, on Tuesday, the day that we're recording, the AJC reported that the state has opened an emergency investigation into sterogenics over an explosion that happened early in the morning on July 31st. This follows another issue where an employee was harmed in a different explosion last year, and there was some recent press reporting that sort of brought that explosion to light. It also brought out the fact that the disclosures from from employees and from the Cobb County Fire Department made clear some discrepancies between the report that the Georgia EPD put out about the 2018 incident and what we've learned in the press this week. And then now we have this other sort of emergency investigation where I think the details are still kind of TBD. But there's going to be a lot more pressure here. This this issue I don't think is resolved in any way. Um, it's interesting that Sterogenics is the facility that was willing to be more open to playing ball with the governor's office. They were the ones that took the first meeting and they got a better report from the governor. They also signed that consent decree with the state. The facility in Covington has been less responsive to the governor and has declined at this point to sign some sort of a legal agreement. Uh, But it'll be interesting to see if these continued calls for closure are heard by officials, if if Governor Kemp reevaluates his position on this, and if the legislature considers any additional oversight of this issue going forward, I know I know State Senator Jen Jordan wants to see an additional investigation. And as leader Bob Trammell told us earlier this week, he would like to see operations at the Smyrna facility suspended. So I definitely don't think this is an issue that's going away anytime soon. All right, well, I think we are going to wrap it there for the day. Lots of political news this week. Uh, it's supposed to be a quiet week. It's almost Labor Day, but that certainly wasn't the case this week. So, Luke, thank you, as always, for joining the pod. Uh, thank you. All righty, guys. We'll talk to you next week. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.